The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Was it your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, as Garrison already said, uh, it's really fun to get to see uh, friends and family and smiling faces here. Uh, it, it means a lot to me to have some of my family here, and I know it means a lot to, to all of our parents. Uh, if you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really, really excited to get to dive into Jonah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get to Jonah 1. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight. Uh, it's a, it just feels like a good kind of breath after 11 weeks on emotional health, yeah? Uh, it's good to see some of you back for the first time in 12 weeks. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, man, we have been walking through a summer on emotional health, talking about what it looks like to have our discipleship to Jesus uh, lead into emotional health and flourishing. And uh, we kind of wrapped that up. And then last week we got to ordain Garrison as a pastor here, uh, which is why everyone yelled at him and cheered. Uh, and now we are entering into a four-week series on the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a ton of fun because it's kind of one of those stories where chances are, especially if you grew up 
up in the Bible Belt South, even if you have no experience of church, that you know there's something that the Christians believe about this guy who one time got swallowed by a whale and spent three days in his belly. And so this is a fun story. There's a lot of irony, a lot of satire, a lot of humor, at least for me. I will laugh and you guys can stare awkwardly. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, but there's also, like many stories in the Bible, uh, another layer to what we see in the story of Jonah about God's goodness and kindness to us. And so I'm excited to get to unpack all of this over the next four weeks as we kind of head into the fall, uh, because it's, it's coming. It's going to be like 80 this week, which is awesome. Uh, so let's pray. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's pause. Let's be silent before the Lord as we kind of invite uh, him to speak to us by his spirit through his word. Let's, let's pray. Lord, you uh, are, are good. God, and as we are about to see this week and over the next four weeks through the story of Jonah, Lord, your mercy endures forever. And though our hearts are so prone to wander, that's not just a line that we sing that sounds interesting or fascinating. Lord, the very state of our hearts is that because of sin, they are prone to wander. Lord, I pray as we consider that, as we think about that, as we see that in the life of Jonah, Lord, that you would convict us and you would mold us and you would shape us more and more into your image. And you would show us up close and personally your deep grace and mercy and kindness to us. Lord, we invite you to speak. We invite you to say hard things. I invite you to call us into unsure and uncertain territory. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, about 40 years ago, a guy by the name of Steve Callahan found himself floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a life raft. And he uh, spent about 76 days floating, not knowing where he was, unsure of what was happening. And I don't know if you know this, but if you spend two and a half months alone at sea, eventually your body starts to break down. He lost, over the course of these two and a half months, about a third of his body weight. He started becoming dehydrated, hallucinating, kind of going in and out of consciousness. But during this time, he had enough wherewithal and enough knowledge of the sea that he took three pencils, because for some reason on the life raft, he had three random pencils, and he fashioned them together into a nautical tool called a sextant. If you don't know what that is, it is a tool that by measuring the distance from the horizon of the ocean to the position of the sun, you can actually find out where you are in the ocean. And so here he is for two and a half months floating alone in the middle of the sea. And because of two fixed realities in the universe, the horizon of the sea and the distance between it and the sun, he was able to identify the actual latitudinal line that he was on in the Atlantic Ocean kind of push himself floating into a current, and then he just leisurely floated to an island in the Caribbean and had a great vacation, and now he wrote a best-selling book and lives happily ever after. That's his story. You can read the book. It's actually a pretty good book. Now, why do I tell you about my friend, and he's not really my friend, but this guy named Steve Callahan? Is it just because it's an ocean story and we're talking about Jonah? Is that why? No, here's, here's why. Because Steve was able to identify and put his focus on two universal constant realities, the horizon of the ocean and the position of the sun, 
he was able to have awareness and knowledge of where he was in his life. So I want to invite us as we consider Jonah over the next four weeks that the same is true for us, that there are two universal, constant, fixed realities in the world that if you are able to get your mind and your heart around them will help you make sense of life regardless of what comes your way. And the first reality is this, there is an instinct within us to resist the leadership of God. There is an instinct, a pull, a bent in the heart of every single human to resist or to push back against or to run from the lordship and leadership of God. Though we're all made in God's image, though we are designed at our very core to be with him and to walk with him and to experience flourishing with him, we still run Even after we experience that with God is true joy, with God is true life, with God is true flourishing, there's something within us that still wants to run, even if we know it's a little bit insane to run from the author of life. When I was eight years old, I ran away from home. I won't tell you all the details of this story uh, because it would be very embarrassing for me. My mom's here. You can ask her later about why eight-year-old Tim ran away from home. But I did. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was one Tuesday afternoon after school. And I went up to my room and I packed a bag and I set off down the country road knowing one thing and one thing only. I was going to Food Lion. That was my first stop. I knew, based on where we lived in the country of Aiken, South Carolina, a small little town, that five miles away there was a food line, and that was going to be my stop. Now, here's the deal. I was pretty much insane to run away from home as an eight-year-old. My home life was pretty good. My parents loved me. They cared about me. I wasn't fleeing anything bad in that sense. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have any plan besides get to food line and figure the rest out. Also, as a kid, I was even more like whiny and lame than I am now. And so the the world's a a cold, dark, dreary place. It was not going to go well for me as an eight-year-old with no money. And so I was insane. I was foolish to leave something that was vibrant and flourishing and good and run away from that for the sake of pursuing, I guess, life on my own as a vagabond. And so I'm heading off down this country road and I make it about a quarter mile or so. And I look back and there's our family van just kind of slowly going alongside of me. And it's like a scene out of a movie. I remember it like it was yesterday. My mom rolls down the window and just casually is like, hey, Tim, what you doing? I'm running away from home. Why? Because I'm upset. Okay. You want to get in now? And she follows me for another probably quarter mile or so, probably even less than that because I was eight, but it felt long. And suddenly, finally, I got back in the car and I I went back home and I'm sure there was a punishment to be had. Now, here's the deal. It was my insanity that drove me to run away from home. And it was my mom's grace to chase me. So the first fixed reality of our world is that there is a tendency and pull within the human heart, an instinct to push back and run away from God. The Bible calls this sin. But the second universal reality is that there's an instinct within God to chase us. There's a pull within the very heart of God to go after his people. The Bible calls this grace. 
And it's around these two fixed realities that the entire universe orbits. It's around these two realities that the entire narrative of Scripture paints the wonderful history of the world. This is the story of our lives, running and chasing sin and grace. This is the reality of our lives, and this is the story and theme of Jonah. It's the theme we're going to keep coming back to over the next four weeks, that Jonah is consistently rebellious. He is the world's worst prophet, and yet God is consistently gracious. He continues time after time, chapter after chapter, moment after moment to chase down Jonah's heart. That's put to the forefront of our our minds in the very first chapter. So let's get into the story together. I just want to walk us through Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to kind of highlight and pull some things out along the way. And then once we get to the end, I'll try to apply it into our lives as we think about Jonah and these two universal realities, our pull away from God, his pull to chase us. Jonah chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. It reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So already, in the first two verses, we are introduced to a person that's really important and a place that's really important. So let's talk about the person, Jonah, right? It says that Jonah is a prophet. And what prophets did in the Old Testament is they would hear from God and speak to people on behalf of God. And Jonah's not new to the whole prophet thing. We can read a historian in 2 Kings 14, where he's already lived out his calling of a prophet to an Israelite king. So he's not new. He knows God calls me to go somewhere, tells me what to say. I, as a prophet in obedience, go where God tells me to go and say what he tells me to say. But there's a wrinkle to it, right? In verse 2, God says, go to Nineveh. And the text says that Nineveh is both a great city and an evil city. And it's not exaggerating in that. Nineveh is a great city. It's the capital of the greatest empire in that time, the Assyrian Empire. And they were known for both their power and their violence. So historical records would say that the Ninevites, when they conquered another kingdom, what they would do is they would cut off the heads of every single person in that kingdom, man, woman, and child. And they would stack them up outside of the gate of the city, basically saying, hey, you want some of this? Good luck. That was their way of basically trash-talking, is to cut off people's heads. That's how evil and wicked and violent they were. And the Ninevites were particularly a thorn in the side of the Israelites because they were neighbors. And so all of the time, for decades, the Assyrians and the Ninevites would say, hey, Israelites, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. We're going to take over. We're going to conquer. They were this constant enemy. And so when God tells Jonah, hey, you should go preach to the Ninevites, there's a lot of valid reasons for him to say no. Uh, that's crazy, they're terrifying, and I hate them, right? Like that, all of that is going on in Jonah's head. These are the enemies, the wicked, evil, cruel, powerful enemies of God's people. And yet God says, Jonah, go. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee from t- to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. In case you're wondering where he's going, he's going to Tarshish. Do you love how repetitive the Bible is sometimes? 
He's going to Tarshish. So just to put it in a kind of geographical context for you, Nineveh is a couple hundred miles northeast of where Jonah is in Israel. And he decides to go to Joppa, which is about as far southwest as you can go on land, get on a ship and go to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. So he's in Israel. Nineveh is modern-day Iraq. He decides to go the complete opposite way to modern-day Spain. It would be a little bit like if God said, hey, go preach the gospel in New York City. And you were like, how about Hawaii? That's what Jonah's doing. He goes, this is not a long way around, okay? Because look, the text even says in two different places, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is not just trying to rebel against God or disobey God. He's trying to escape the very presence of God. He says, no, get me far away from God's presence. I don't even want to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to go as far away as I can. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So notice verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So here's Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh. He says, nope, I'm going the other way to Tarshish. So God brings a storm, and it says the storm is so bad, the ship wants to break up. It wants to basically just fall apart in the middle of the ocean. And here are all these pagan, non-God-fearing mariners, and they're like, what do we do? Let's just start throwing cargo out. Maybe we can lighten the ship. Everybody just pray to whatever God you believe in. Like, let's just do whatever we can in order to make this not mess up. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, because Jonah's asleep, what do you mean, you sleeper? Love the Bible. This story's funny, okay? I'm going to be the only one that laughs for the next four weeks, but I think it's, it's hilarious. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a thought, give a thought to us so that we may not perish. So notice Jonah, the one who worships the one true God, the one who is a prophet for that God, the one who knows the God who controls the sea, is asleep. And God uses a pagan captain of a ship to tell Jonah to talk to God. Notice that. A pagan captain is telling God's prophet, you should probably go talk to your God. Maybe he will save us. Wake up, you sleeper. Verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So casting lots is kind of an ancient form of rolling the dice or chance. So they're first praying, maybe that'll save us, praying to our false gods. They start chucking cargo overboard. They're like, let's cast lots, let's find out, did somebody on this boat do something to make their god really upset? And the lot falls on Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So they're like, hey, who are you? And why is this happening? Because of you. Notice what Jonah says. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Notice this next line. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is our first bit of what you're going to see throughout the book, a little bit of comedic irony right? That Jonah, who is in the middle of fleeing from the presence and commands of God, says, I fear the Lord, which is Bible talk for, I revere God. I follow him. I obey him. I do what he says in my life, to which all of us as the reader are like, no, you don't. It's very not true, Jonah. That's why the storm is here. That's why you're on the boat. He is so unaware of the reality of what's happening. He has no idea. Verse 10, 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They're like, you're fleeing from the guy who controls this stuff? This is not good for all of us. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So God just keeps sending storm, storm, storm. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And I want to be clear here. Jonah's not repenting. He's not taking full ownership of his sin. He's acknowledging, hey, this storm is here because I'm rebelling against God. But notice what he doesn't say is, all right, Lord, I repent. Let's go to Nineveh. What does he say? No, kill me. Toss me into the sea. You got to think part of what's going on in his mind is, man, I would rather die in the ocean than go to Nineveh and preach. He is that dead set on drowning out and running from the voice of God. God, I'd rather die. Toss me into the sea. He's not taking ownership. He's not being some great, courageous benefactor. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Just toss me in. That'll save you. No, he says, I would rather die than follow God. And look at what happens. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So here are pagan sailors worshiping God, not because of God's prophet, but in spite of God's prophet. That they're willing to call out to him. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So here they are, pagan sailors getting it. The God's in control that he's the Lord, that they even worship him after tossing Jonah into the sea because they're so afraid of God, they're willing to offer sacrifices when God's prophet is like, no, just toss me in, I'm good. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'll let Garrison handle that next week. (laughs) That's where the story ends, right? That's chapter one. Jonah in the belly of a fish, hanging out on the run from God, rather die than follow him. That that is how the first of four chapters of the story of Jonah starts. So let me stop here for the rest of our time. Let me just talk about what does this mean for us, right? In light of the story of Jonah, in light of those two constant realities, what does this mean for us? Well, I think the first is we have to see this fixed reality that there is an instinct within us to resist the leadership of God. I mean, look at what Jonah is doing. The first thing that just hits you in the face in the story of Jonah is just how far Jonah will go to get away from the voice of God, to drown out God's call and God's voice and God's commands. So God says, go to Nineveh, and he goes to Tarshish, right? God sends a storm. He goes down below deck to sleep. God casts lot, he has them cast lots, and he points the lot on Jonah, and he's like, yeah, toss me in. I'm done. He will stop at nothing to drown out the commands and voice of God, constantly on the run from him. And it's easy for us, some couple of thousand of years later or so, to read Jonah and read parts of these stories and just be baffled. Jonah, you are dumb. (laughs) There's just a sense in which we can have this kind of pride with us that's like, man, how unaware and, and idiotic do you have to be to run from God so much so that you're willing to be tossed into the ocean? And we might start to be a little proud. I'm not that rebellious against God. 
Like, I would never go that far in my rebellion against him. I would never go that far to drown out the voice of God. But here's the deal. While we may not drown out the voice of God by trying to literally drown, we have a whole host of ways that all of us, myself included in the room, drown out the voice of God on a daily basis, do we not? We've all got our proverbial ships to Tarshish that we use to run from the voice of God. And we do this in a, a number of different ways and through a number of different strategies that I think are worth acknowledging and seeing within ourselves. So the first way that, that we drown out the voice of God is what I call the distraction strategy. This is where God speaks, but we just don't listen. And this one's huge in 2022, right? With the amount of podcasts and streaming services and social media, just a million different ways you have to fill your life with noise and voices so that you never have to hear the voice of God. And so I'm at work and, and I feel the spirit prompting me to go talk to my coworker, talk to him about Jesus, invite him to church, but oh, TikTok, Instagram, just scroll like that. Or maybe, hey, I know, I know that I should, you know, I'm reading God's word and 1 Peter 4 tells me to show hospitality to one another without grumbling and, okay, that hits. I know I need to welcome people into my life, welcome them into my home to pray for them and encourage them and, and share God's love with them. But like, I just am really busy. Oh, a work email, look, it's distraction. We just numb ourselves to God speaking to us where we go, I'm not drowning out the voice of God. I never disobey God. Yeah, because we don't hear God at all. That's distraction. That one's the more obvious one. The next two are, I think, a little bit more sneaky. The second strategy is what I call the makeover strategy. That's where God speaks, and then we change what he said. This is the strategy that anytime God asks me to do something I don't want to do, I just kind of either give what he asked or give him or give his word a little bit of a makeover. I just change a little bit of what I think about him or how I think he is or, you know, automatically, suddenly, my interpretation of the Bible just now suddenly agrees with what I want to believe or do anyways. Or I just decide which character trait of God I want to elevate or highlight at the time. It often sounds, it comes through in statements like, I can never believe in a God who. Or the God I believe in would never. Or, well, I just don't think the Bible says... And really, we, the makeover strategy just does whatever we need to do to change our beliefs about God or about his word. Not too much to where it's like sketchy and weird, but just enough to pacify our conscience to where we don't actually have to obey. For instance, God invites me to be with him through spiritual practices. Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, silence and solitude. And we're like, yeah, I know God's calling me to that. And I know it's good for me. And I know it's part of his invitation and commands. But like, I'm really stressed out and I'm very busy. And over, after all, right, Matthew says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He wouldn't want me to stress myself out to spend time with him. And isn't there that story about Elijah who he like gives a nap and a snack to? I like that story. You know, we don't like 1 Timothy 4 that says train yourself for godliness. So we elevate one over the other. Or, let's say God is trying to tell me to not have sex with someone that I'm not married to. And I don't like that. That's difficult, and that's hard. And so, instead of just blatantly saying that, or blatantly being disobedient, because that irks at our conscience too much, I just, I just kind of change my view of God a little bit. Well, I just don't think I believe in a God who really cares about that. Like, God doesn't really care what I do in the bedroom. Like, God's a God of love. He just wants a relationship with me. It's just about me and him. As long as we're good, it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of my life because God's a God of love. He wants me to be happy. He is for me. Or we do the reverse, right? Because suddenly, the next day, God tells us to forgive someone we don't want to forgive. And suddenly, God's not a God of love and forgiveness. God is a God of justice. Well, he wouldn't want me to forgive him. He hurt me. She said that bad thing about me. 
And God's about God of justice. He doesn't like when his people are hurt. So I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to stand up to this. It's wrong that they wronged me. The basic idea with this strategy is we begin to operate from a new made over version of God who simply never asks us to do something we didn't want to do already. The third, I would say, is even more sneaky. And this is the bargain strategy where God speaks and we offer something else. And this one's the most sneaky because it feels the most Christian. So what happens is God asks me to do something I don't want to do, and I respond by either explicitly or implicitly going, well, God, I don't want to do that, but I will do this instead. So maybe that looks like, well, God, I really don't want to give money so, to the church or to your kingdom causes, so instead I'm just going to give my time and resource and, and energy. Or the reverse, I really don't want to give my time and energy, I really don't want to be sacrificial in that way, so instead I'll just give my money. Or, well, God, I really don't want to forgive my spouse right now. I really don't want to sacrificially love them. What if I just, like, read my Bible for a few more minutes? And we bargain with God. God, I'm not going to obey you in how you call. Maybe instead I'll just kind of obey you in this way. And you got to think that's part of what's going on in Jonah's head, right? God, I'm not going to follow you to Nineveh, but, like, maybe we'll be good if I, like, sacrifice myself on behalf of the sailors. We're good with that. It's like my two-year-old who thinks giving me a hug will get her out of having to clean her playroom. I'm not going to do that, Dad, but I love you. We do the same thing with the Lord. And here's my point. Although we may not drown out God's voice in the same ways or to the same extremes as Jonah, we absolutely do the same thing. By any number of these strategies above, by the distraction strategy, the makeover strategy, the bargain strategy, all of us have these explicit and implicit ways we just try to pacify our conscience by any means necessary so we still feel like we're doing a good job following Jesus, but like not in the ways he's really asking us to the most. But that's not the only thing we see in chapter 1. It's not the only thing we see in this entire story. That's not the only fixed universal constant in reality. The second one is also at the forefront as well, and that is this. While there is an instinct within us to rebel and run from God, there is an instinct within God to chase us. The story is very much about a man who will stop at nothing to run from God, but it's very much about a God who will stop at nothing to win back his heart. Time and time again, look for it in every chapter. As you're reading it in your quiet times with the Lord this week, as you're studying it in your groups, as you're listening to it preached on Sundays, look for these time and time again, these universal constants. Because here's the reality. If you don't get this, if you don't get God is chasing and pursuing Jonah, you are going to be tempted to read chapter 1 in a wrong way. And here's what I mean. You might be tempted to read chapter one and think, okay, I get it. Jonah disobeys God, and so God makes his life terrible. And so if I want a non-terrible life, then all I need to do is listen to God, do what he says, and then my life will not be terrible. That's just not what's happening in Jonah one. It's not the narrative of the text. Let me ask you this. Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Like we talked about why Nineveh, but why Jonah? Was he just like the next guy up? It was like, all right, well, that prophet's on that mission, so I guess it's Jonah. Was he just the geographically closest? It's like, no, I want Jonah. No, that's not why at all. We get a glimpse of this in chapter 4, so I won't, I won't give it all away now, but we find out at the end of the story that God sends Jonah to Nineveh because Jonah has in his heart deeply rooted hate and disdain for the Ninevites. 
They were violent, they were cruel, they were wicked, they were enemies to Jonah and his people. And he doesn't want to go preach to them. He doesn't want them to repent. He wants God to destroy them. God, they're my enemy. I hate them. I'm so bitter against them. They are the worst. God, I don't want to preach repentance that you'll be merciful. I want you to destroy them. His heart towards the Ninevites is full of hatred and prejudice and bitterness. And many of us know firsthand that hatred and bitterness, when it's left unchecked, rots us from the inside out, does it not? And so yes, God sends Jonah to Nineveh because he cares about the Ninevites. God sends Jonah to Nineveh as a rescue effort for these people, but also as a rescue effort for Jonah. God doesn't just want to be merciful to Nineveh, he also wants to be merciful to Jonah, gracious to Jonah. He doesn't just want the Ninevites to repent, he wants Jonah to repent. And once you get that and see that, it changes your entire perspective on chapter one. Chapter one is not about a grumpy God punishing his prophet because he's not doing what he asks. Chapter one is about God chasing after Jonah's heart going after him in mercy and grace. It's all, all of chapter one is mercy and grace. The ship is a gift of mercy. The sailors waking him up and casting lots that fall on him are a gift of mercy. The storm is a gift of mercy. Being thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish are gifts of mercy. God is so committed to saving Jonah from his sin and himself that he will do whatever it takes to get Jonah's attention and obedience. He's so set. Jonah, I have to get you to love me and to say no to this sin. And so the events in Jonah chapter 1 and the rest of the story are not God's wrath. They're his grace. There's mercy. There's love. There, as one theologian puts it, severe mercies of God. And here's where it starts to rub us. Because there's a good chance, because you're here in church, that you really like what I had to say at the beginning about the grace of God chasing us down. We're all on board with that. We like that reality. Yes and amen. God chases us. He loves us. His grace is never ending. He goes after us. Reckless love of God. Yes and amen. But be careful. Because while it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, and the Bible is very clear about that, that kindness doesn't always look how we want it to look. And sometimes it's much more painful than we want it to be. God, in his severe kindness and mercy, loves his people too much to sit by idly while sin destroys us and rots us from the inside out. So even if he has to go to extreme, severe measures to do it, he will stop at nothing to chase us down and bring us back to him. He will stop at nothing to get our attention and to call us to repentance and call us back to love. And so let me ask you, are there severe mercies in your life right now that God might be using to get your heart back to him? Are there things in your life where you're like, this is utterly and brutally painful that might actually be a severe grace gift from God that he is using to wake you up and to draw you back to himself? So that financial trouble that you suddenly found yourself in, that heartache, that, that trouble to pay the bills, that struggle to, to figure out how am I going to afford this month, what am I going to do, may that actually be a grace gift, severe mercy from God to show you what you love more than him that he might actually be using a severe mercy in your life, being laid off, getting in the wreck, having the car trouble that costs way more than car trouble ever should cost. Might that actually be God's severe and gracious gift to you to show you, man, you hold your life like this and not for God? Or that breakup, that guy or that girl 
that you started planning life with, and you started going, this is the future, this is the trajectory, and now it's over, and you're like, what happened? And you're hurting, and it's painful, and you're like, what the heck? Might that actually be a severe mercy in your life from God? To show you, man, am I, am I finding my identity in this? Am I worshiping the Lord? Am I worshiping my future, or my future design, or what I want out of life? Could it be that, that that conflict you just can't stop having with that coworker or that friend or that family member, and you're like, I've tried everything to reconcile and it's just not working. Might that be a severe mercy from God to show you you don't actually get God's forgiveness because if you did, you would forgive? And might it be a severe mercy from God that he's showing you, oh, actually, I'm self-righteous. I don't want to forgive because I don't actually think I've been forgiven. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying everything that's terrible in your life is a severe mercy grace gift from God, right? The story of Jonah is very clear about that. That's what Jonah's friends think. Hey, obviously God's trying to wake you up to something. Maybe you should repent. And Jonah's like, no, I don't think so, right? We have that example, but we also have the example of Jonah that says sometimes we're in these seasons of intense suffering and pain and heartache and brokenness, and we are able to look and go, okay, Jonah says, might this be a severe mercy from God to draw my heart back to him? Might this be his grace? Jonah gives us a category where there are times that extremely difficult and painful scenarios are actually God's grace at work. And so let me close with this. For some of us in the room, uh, we're in a severe mercies of God kind of season. And my admonishment and encouragement to you is don't be like Jonah. <laughs> running from the voice of God, doing whatever it takes to drown it out. See this, whatever season you're in is a severe mercy from God, a chance to wake up, to turn from your sin, to obey, to repent, to go after God. But for others of us, uh, my admonition would, would be this, don't wait for the severe mercies for God to get your attention. Don't wait for that suffering. Don't wait for that pain. Don't wait for that hurt. For most of us, chances are God is using normal measures and mercies right now to get our attention and call us back to obedience. He's speaking to us through his word, through prayer, through preaching, through our community of believers. So don't wait for the extreme. God will get your attention. If you are his child, God will get your attention. The question for us today to ask is, are we willing to listen now? Or to even take it a step back, do I even have space in my life to hear? Am I sitting with him in his word? Am I, I don't know, occasionally getting off social media to sit and be still and hear from God? Am I getting around other believers who love the Lord and love me and want to speak in the very words of God to my life? And do I listen when they speak? Are we listening? That's the question we all have to answer from Jonah chapter 1. We have a merciful God who will not pers stop pursuing his people. Are we willing to listen? And that's the story of Jonah. There's a, an instinct within the human heart to resist the leadership of God, and there is an instinct within the heart of God to chase us. And that, church, is what makes God's grace so incredible. That God will stop at nothing to save us from ourselves, so much so that 750 years later, God does not stop even keeping his own son alive. He sends Jesus 750 years after Jonah, after this rescue story of a prophet, God does another rescue story. Jonah's story is meant to show us ours, that if it's possible to rescue Jonah, it is possible for God to rescue his people. If it's possible for God to chase down this prophet who will not stop drowning out the voice of God, it is possible for God to rescue us. And to a people set on running from God, God sends a savior set on dying for them.
That's the good news of the gospel, right? That's what we celebrate every single Sunday when we take communion together, is we celebrate a God who will stop at nothing because of his grace to get his people back to himself, including sending his son to die the death we deserved, go to the cross on our behalf, and rise again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He will stop at nothing. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather, is we we celebrate communion. And this is our, our practice as a church to do every Sunday, to remember the grace of God, which does not stop chasing us down, regardless of the cost, even when it costs his son his very life. So we have some communion cups spread out. If you're missing one, we were light tonight, so just like nod and somebody will pass one to you. Uh, this is our practice where we uh, remember the body and blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, uh, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for worshiping with us. This is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in with us tonight, not because we're trying to be weird or withhold from you, but because you'd be saying something is true about yourself when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe in Jesus. I'll be down front like I am every Sunday. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But for all who are in Christ, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And so we take this little wafer and we remember that Jesus said, this bread represents my body given on the cross for sins. So churches, we eat this little wafer. May we remember the severe mercy of God that drove Jesus to give up his body on the cross. So church, take and eat. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of Christ's blood. And every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are announcing, remembering, celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. Church, this is evidence, as we remember the blood of Christ, that God will stop at nothing to bring us back to himself. So church, take and drink. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue worshiping together. Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Jonah. God, thank you for just your kindness and your goodness to us and your grace and your mercy. Lord, there is a tendency and an instinct and a pull within all of us to want to run from you because of sin, to want to say no to your leadership, to want to say no to your kingship and your lordship, to want to run as fast as possible away from you, Lord. And yet we see the beautiful picture time and time and time and time and time again in the scriptures that you do not stop chasing us. You did not stop chasing Jonah. You would not let him go. You would not let him ruin himself. So even in your severe mercy and kindness, you did whatever it took to wake him up to your saving power. And you will stop at nothing. And so much so that 2,000 some odd years ago, you sent Jesus on our behalf. That that's how far your grace goes. That it would go to a cross. That you would die for us and for our sins. We love you. Trust you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.